We're in Psalm 54. When you have that, if you'll stand with me in reverence to God's Word. I want to begin reading this morning before verse 1 in the notes there at the top of the psalm. It says, To the choir master with stringed instruments, a mascal of David, when the Ziphites went out and told Saul, Is not David hiding among us? Verse 1 O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies in your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a freewill offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. You may be seated. The reason I read what we have there before the psalm is it gives us the occasion from which David was writing. It tells us what he was writing, who he was writing to. And if you see those notes at the beginning of a psalm, it's important to understand that those are not things that were added back in later. Uh, They're not things that, that some commentator or Bible translator has added in, but those are things that are a part of the text. You know, the little headings that we have in our Bible, mine on this one says, the Lord upholds my life. Well, that's something that the people who put together the Bible for us and translated for us, they added that. But the other is put there to tell us who and what and why and when. It tells us the occasion that David was writing. What made him write this psalm? Because sometimes we read these psalms and we read them out of that context and we we miss some of it. But this is very important because this is an occasion that is recorded for us in the book of 1 Samuel in chapter 26. David is running away. He has fled into the wilderness. And when he is there, these people come to Saul, these Ziphites, and they say, Is not David hiding among us? David is in hiding for his life. We see this throughout parts of 1 Samuel where David is running because Saul wants him dead. Or at least Saul seems like sometimes he wants him dead. Maybe that's a a better way to look at it because there are times when, when David and Saul get along very well. But then there's also times when Saul gets angry and takes a spear and tries to throw it at David. And that doesn't seem like their relationship is probably very good at that point. So in this instance, here are these Ziphites, and they have come, and they say, Is not David hiding among us? They want Saul to come and to take David away. They want to get in the good graces of the king, because if you're on the king's good side, that can be very good for you. Everybody wants to be in a position where you're on the good side of the king, because he's got an awful lot of power. 
And so they come and they say, hey, David's here. Now, what we have seen as we look through, or what we can see as we look through 1 Samuel 26, is that when David is hiding, there are times when he has the opportunity to kill Saul. There are times when Saul sneaks into a cave and there is David. And he does not know David is there. And David could have taken those opportunities to kill him, but David is constantly reminding himself and those around him that Saul, even though he does not agree with Saul, even though he, he is being pursued by Saul, Saul is still God's anointed king. And so David does everything within his power to avoid these confrontations with Saul. He refuses to let his men, his fellow soldiers, kill Saul when they have that opportunity. And he treats Saul with great reverence, even though Saul in no way deserves those things. Even though David himself has been anointed king, he will be king one day. It will not be Saul's sons. But he still has this reverence. And David tells his men that God will take care of this in his own time. God will at some point remove Saul from the throne, but it will not be David that does it. So when we think about that context, I think it helps us to understand this psalm because here is David and he is in a tough position. He is being pursued by men who want him dead, but also men who he feels he cannot defend himself against. He does not feel like his life is so important and so worthy that he can go out and take care of the one who is coming against him. He has no ability, he has no reason, he has no um, permission from God to strike back at Saul. Well, the reason this is important for us is because in the time in which we live, we are constantly facing this same challenge. Now, there may not be people who physically want to come and to take your life. They may not want you dead this morning. They may not attempt to come into your home or your place of business and, and take your life. But we do face, on a daily basis, those who want to come against us, those who are evil, those who are wicked, those who follow the ways of this world, those who have given over to their sinful desires and have been conquered by them. And our natural inclination, what, what our, our gut and our heart tells us to do, is to strike back. It's to, it's to come out swinging. It's to, it's to attempt to defend ourselves. I, you may have heard me say this, I have always thought about, and I guess all of us as parents think about what we would do if someone did something to our children. And the thing that bothers my, my heart sometimes is the fact that I feel pretty confident that I wouldn't feel bad doing something terrible to someone who did something to my children. Like I own guns, and I'm pretty good with them. And it's kind of funny, but at the same time, it it, it 
it bothers me a little bit to think about that's what's in my heart that I would strike back. Now, if you told me, no, I wouldn't do anything, then I would be more worried about you and your fitness as a parent because we defend our children. That's what we do. And maybe that's a different situation, I think, than what David's dealing with, but I think that's our, our natural instinct with more than just our kids. When someone cuts us off when we're driving down the interstate, we get angry. When someone does something in our society, when we see someone harm children or we see someone who is taking things that don't belong to them, or we see someone who who walks into a place and begins shooting people randomly and indiscriminately, we get angry. But as believers in Jesus Christ, our call is not to strike back. But rather, the, the, the oddest thing is what we're told to do. We are told to love those who hate us. We are told to take this great message that we have about Jesus Christ and take it into a world that is lost and dying. Here is David, the anointed future king who is being pursued by the king who God no longer loves, the king who God no longer speaks to, the king who God no longer shows favor to. And his first instinct is to return this hatred and malice with love. Why does David do that? Well, I think he writes about that in this psalm. And I think this pattern that he shows and these beliefs that he has are very important for us. Look beginning in verse 1. Why does David not show anger? Well, the first reason is David knows that God can save. David knows that God can save. He says in verse 1, O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. David has been saved by God time after time. It has not been that long ago that he stood up and faced the champion of the Philistines. He faced Goliath, this great and powerful warrior. He faced him down. He faced him down knowing that if he lost, he was dead. If he lost, not only was he dead, but his men, his brothers, would become slaves to the Philistine army. And when he walks out into battle, he, he has arm, the armor is too big for him. He has nothing but a sling and small rocks. And he walks in and he, he's victorious. The, the last image we see is the Philistine army running away because when there was victory for David, it, it got the troops excited and they stormed into battle and they won. God had saved him time after time as he has been fleeing from Saul and he knows that God has a plan from him. He knows that he has an inheritance God has promised him something. He has promised him this great kingdom. He has promised him great victory. How do you get this inheritance if you're dead? Dead people leave inheritances. They don't give them. 
So he knows that God is going to put him in this place of great power and great authority. He knows that God is going to make him king. And so he is confident that in this situation, God can save him. He goes on in verse 3 to say, For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set before them, they God before themselves. He, he knows these people have come up against him. He knows that they are trying to strike at him, but he knows that God can save him. If we were to flip back over into 1 Samuel, this is what he says when he's encountering this situation. He says, If it be Jehovah that hath stirred thee against me, Let him accept an offering, but if it be the children of men, cursed be they before Jehovah, for they have driven me out this day that I should not cleave to an inheritance of Jehovah, saying, Go, serve other gods. He is saying here in this passage when he is talking to Saul, he says, If God is the one who has sent you to strike me down today, here I am. He says, but I know what has happened is people have set you against me. They have perverted your mind, and now you are coming to try to strike me down. He says, and that's not what God wants. He knows that God has promised him something great. Friends, you and I have been given a great promise from God. God has promised that he would never leave us nor forsake us. He has promised that he wants good things for his children. In spite of everything else, in spite of anything else we face, God wants good things for us. And no matter what we're going through and what we're dealing with, we can't always see past the current thing we're having to face. We can't see past the giant. We can't see past the storm. But the reality is God is doing something in our lives to show us his goodness and grace. And so as we face this onslaught from the world, as we face the difficulties that come at us every day, we stand confident that God can save us. Not that we have to save ourselves. Not that we have to go out into battle and try to strike down the giant. Because what happens if David marches up to Goliath with that armor that doesn't fit right and that sword that is too heavy? I mean, Goliath's hands would have been big enough where he could have crushed David and never thought anything about it. He could have grabbed him by the neck and squeezed his head off. But David doesn't go into that battle believing that he can save the people. I think as Christians, sometimes we go into the spiritual battles that we face thinking that we can save God. You know, God is under attack. God is, is, is being kicked out of this, or God is being removed from that. We need to defend God. God doesn't need defending. We need God daily defending us. We are unable on our own to do anything to save ourselves, but just like David, we need to be confident that God can save. And he's still saving. And he continues to save us. I give you an example that I think about quite often. I don't know if you've ever done this before, but on occasion I'll be driving down the road and the radio will be on or my cell phone will ring or, or something like that, and I'll, I'll get distracted. And like 10 minutes later, it's like I come back into focus, and I, I wonder, how did, how did I drive the last 10 minutes? Because I don't remember anything I've seen. 
I don't remember anything that was before. I, I hope that I've just been so zoned in on the road that I've, I've not been thinking about anything else, but I, I fear sometimes that, that the reality is I've been focused on everything else, and somehow, you know, I had a, uh, what, a Carrie Underwood moment, you know, Jesus take the wheel, or whoever that was, I don't know. But, you know, that, that, sort, of, that sort of thing. And it, I'm reminded every single time, no, no matter how long it had been, no matter where I am at, I'm reminded every single time that God somehow in that moment kept me from killing myself. Because I don't remember, what's, I don't remember where it's been. I don't remember wh- what I've been doing. And maybe I need to get checked out and not be driving on the roads and shouldn't have told that story, but you've all been there. How much more so is God saving us daily in the spiritual battles that we face in this world? Friends, let's not get arrogant and boastful about it and think that we are doing something great. We're keeping ourselves focused on God, but He is daily saving us. Number two, in verse two, David knows that God can save. Secondly, David knows that God will listen. David knows that God will listen. Verse 2, O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. What was the saying of the, the, the modern era of human history from, from Frederick Nietzsche? He said, God is dead, right? And I think in his mind, he believed that he had killed him. You know, the great philosophers believed that they had worked things out so much that they had killed off the need for God. The communists believe that God is a crutch, you know, that it's what the people use to to lean on so they can get by. Because the world's bad and the world's tough, and and what do you do? Well, you get rid of God and you replace it with communism because everybody's happy under communism, right? Because nobody has anything, and so everybody's happy having nothing. It's not exactly the way it works. Friends, you and I need to make sure that each and every day we are crying out to our God because He is listening. He is not far off. He is not a distant God that cannot be contacted. He is not an idol that sits by and has no impact on our life, but rather He is a God who is actively involved and listening He has done everything. He has made everything. He has given us all that we have. I was at a thing on Thursday night, and I was listening to um, the guy who was speaking is a very famous neurosurgeon. He basically knows everything there is to know about the brain. And he said that if we, every moment, would learn something new, it would take us like 300 million years to begin to challenge the capacity in our brain. God is so wonderful of a designer that He has made our brain like that. He has created us to be able to think and to learn. A God that powerful is ready to listen to us. A God that powerful is available to listen to us. See, so often when we get into these spiritual battles and we're dealing with these hardships and we're dealing with the things ahead of us, we, we want to call somebody or we want to pick up a, a book and see if it will give us insight. 
We, we want to we talk to the preacher. We want to talk to our deacon or our Sunday school teacher. But what we fail to do is the first thing is to get down on our knees and cry out to God. And say, God, I know that you're listening and I, I want you to hear me right now. He says, God, please listen to my prayer. He says, give ear to the words of my mouth. He is crying out to God in this difficult circumstance. Again, he's not relying on himself. I think we see in the times in David's life when he relies on himself and how quickly he falls, how quickly he fails. But here he cries out to God. Because the reality is that sometimes I might give you bad advice because I don't know any better. Your friend might give you bad advice. A lot of the books you pick up are going to give you very bad advice. But God listens. He hears us when we pray. He hears us when we cry out to him. He wants to be there for us. He wants to involve himself in our life. He wants to, to be there to give us guidance. And we only do that through prayer. We do that through calling out to him and listening to him. Our prayers are not empty words. But sometimes we pray them like that. Sometimes we pray as if the only thing our words are doing is they're impacting other people. Or or maybe they're making it up to the ceiling, but that's where they stop. But the reality is God is listening. He is active and he wants to hear us pray. We need to realize this, too, that even when our prayers go no further than our heart, God still hears them. You know, Jesus cautioned against that because there are people who like to get up and they would stand and they would say, Oh, God, you know, God, hear my prayer. And they, they give out all these big words. And it's amazing. Some of them begin to just fall back as if they're praying five or six hundred years ago. And they sound like Puritans because they use all these really big words, even though they don't know what they mean. And they say them over and over again. And that does nothing. God wants us to talk to him from our heart, to cry out with the passions of our soul and know that he's listening. Thirdly, verses 4 and 5, David knows that God will sustain him. He says, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies in your faithfulness, put an end to them. Here's a man who has been anointed king over God's people. He was going to be king of the people that God had called out. God had called their father Abraham out of, out of this pagan-filled culture that he lived in. And then God had called his people out of Egypt. He had delivered them from slavery and bondage. But now the anointed king finds himself in a cave running for his life. And in that moment, he knows that God will sustain him. Friends, you and I have been made children of the king. We have been called by the name of his son. We have been given life in him through Jesus Christ. And we still find ourselves in those moments where we are cowering in the back of a cave, fearing for our life. In those moments, we have got to 
realize that God sustains us. God is, and I love it here, God is the upholder of my life. An image here is if we're, our lives are in God's hands and He is holding them up. The, the world is crashing down around us. Things are falling apart. If we're above an ocean, there are sharks swimming. If there's a, a storm there, whatever it is, whatever analogy you want to use, and here is our life and it is in God's hand and He is holding it up. He is keeping it from every moment being destroyed. David sees this as his world crashes down, as he is running in fear. God is his helper. He also knows here that that God is the one who will take care of his enemies. In verse 5, he says, he will return the evil on my enemies. David doesn't say, I'm going to grab my sword and I'm going to march out of this cave and I'm going to make Saul pay for what he has done. I'm going to make him regret the day that he pursued me. He says, God, I'm going to let you handle it. God, I'm going to let you take care of it. You know, if you go to the back of the book, we find out what God does. That God is a a just God. That he does not let evil last forever. He does not let it continue on unpunished. But He doesn't give that to us. He doesn't give that responsibility to us. God God gives David the instruction. He gives us the instruction to show kindness to His enemies. Friends, you and I need to do well to make sure that it is God that is sustaining us. It's not our jobs. It's not our relationships, it's not our status, but it is God who sustains us and carries us through. It is Him who takes care of us. It is Him who is our helper in time of great struggle and great need. And we let God take care. We let God take care of our enemies. We let God take care of the evil in this world. We trust that He knows what He is doing. We look at the evil that is pervasive. We look at the hatred that runs rampant through our world. And we wonder why God is waiting. But I'm confident that he has a reason. And he has a purpose. Finally. Verses 6 and 7. He knew that God could save. He knew that God would listen. He knew that God would sustain him. And then lastly, he knew God would keep his promises. He says, With a free will offering I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. Why? Why is he talking about making a sacrifice? Why is he talking about this? Why would he be talking about giving thanks to the Lord and his name being good? He's in a cave. He's hiding and running for his life. When you get in a cave and they get the front blocked off, there is no exit. They can wait you out and starve you out. Or they can come in and take your life. Why in that moment would he give thanks to God? Look in verse 7. For he has delivered me from every trouble. And my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. How can he say that his eye has looked in triumph 
on his enemy when he hasn't won, when he's not yet king, when Saul is still alive and pursuing him. I mean, you can almost get this get this picture that he's, he's sitting in this dark cave and he's writing these words and he knows that the enemy is outside. He knows that the enemy is at the gate. The enemy is coming. The one who wants to take his life is, is coming. He's there. He's waiting on him. How can he say that he's been delivered from his enemies? It's because he knows with great confidence that God keeps his promises. Our God has never failed us, not even once. He has never let us down. He has never departed from his plan. He has never given in to evil. He has never done anything to desert us. Now, there have been ample opportunities, and we have taken those opportunities to run as far away from God as we can. We have taken the opportunity to run away from God and not follow God and not listen God to God. But God has never done that to us because God keeps his promises. For David, it's like it was already over. It's like he already had the victory. It's like he was already king because he knew that what God has said he was going to do, God would fulfill that promise. That God would deliver him from this evil. That God would take him from this cave where it is dark and damp, where he is scared for his life. And he knew that God was taking him to sit on the throne of Israel. To be the king of God's people. He knew that's what was coming. He knew that's what was going to happen. And so here he speaks as if it is already done. Because God keeps his promises. Everyone that he has ever made, he has kept. Everyone that he has ever made that is coming in the future, he will keep. What confidence we can have. What confidence you and I can have in knowing that our God keeps his promises. When you walk out of this place and you walk back into a world that is lost and dying, you walk into a world that is full of hate, full of malice, you can walk back into this world knowing full well that our God keeps His promises. He's never going to leave you or forsake you. He's never going to fail at doing what His plan is. He's never going to fail at completing his perfect mission. See, you and I, we, we can't see very far ahead. And so when we don't see God do something as quickly as we would like, we, we teeter. We, we kind of lean one way or the other. We begin to worry. We begin to, to have doubt. We begin to have suspicion that, that maybe we misunderstood God or, or maybe God's going to leave this one up to us or, or maybe God's not going to do what, what He said this time. We, we, we worry and we fear and God says, have none of that. I keep my promises. I deliver on what I have said. He doesn't always do it when we want. He doesn't always do it in the timing that we want. But our God is faithful and He never leaves us to defend ourselves and to do it on our own. 
And David can see that in this dark, damp cave with the enemy around him, with these people who have betrayed him and said, is, is David not with us? With Saul closing in and, and David unsure of what tomorrow will bring, he has great confidence that God will keep every promise he has made. Friends, the most beautiful promise that the Scriptures provide us is that God would not leave us in our sin. In Genesis chapter 3, we, we sinned and we fall. We fall terribly short of God's expectation. And we get to a point where David has made the promise that that though his family is sinful and though he is sinful, God is going to raise up someone from his family and they will sit on a throne that never ends. They will sit in a position that will never go away. And it doesn't look very good right here. If you get to 1 Samuel chapter 26 as you're reading through your Bible, it doesn't look very good. It doesn't look like there's going to be anyone sitting on the throne of David because it doesn't look like there's ever going to be a throne of David. It doesn't look like he's going to make it. But the reality is that he does. God keeps his promise and David becomes king and then his son Solomon becomes king and then a king and a king and a king and they keep following in David's line and then the nation falls and they fall into sin again but God keeps that promise and one day, hundreds and hundreds of years later, a little baby is born in a place called Bethlehem. And guess where he comes from? He comes from the house of David. He, he's born in the same city that David was born in. And that little kid, and his mama names him Jesus, and he grows up, and he is persecuted. And he, when he looks at these, when he looks at this psalm, how many questions could Jesus have had about this? But he didn't because he knew that God keeps his promises. He knew that God saves and God sustains Jesus didn't have questions because not only was he fully God, but he was also fully man, and he, he followed God perfectly. And they arrested him, and they tried him, and they beat him, they crucified him, and he died. But on the third day, he arose, and it took until that moment when he arose from the dead for those who followed him to realize that this is the one that God has been promising, not since Matthew chapter 1, but since Genesis chapter 3, all the way back when you and I sinned, all the way back when we fell short. God promised that he would send someone, someone who could give us life, someone who would eventually die in our place. Because, see, God, as, as David mentions here, God always comes up against his enemies, like verse 5 says. He always returns evil on his enemies. But instead of sending it to us, we who are God's enemy, because we did not do what he said, we did not follow after him, he took all of that evil and that wrath and that punishment, and he put it on his son on the cross. So now, if you and I will follow Him, if we will trust in Him, if we will turn from our sin and believe in Him, He will give us life. So now when God looks at us, He doesn't see us, these, these sinful people. But He looks at you and I, and He says, that one belongs to my son. 
That one has been forgiven by my son. That's one of my children. Friends, that's how we have the same confidence that David had. This confidence that God will save and God will listen and God will sustain and God will keep his promises. We have that because of Christ. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you've never turned to him. You've never cried out to God and said, God, forgive me. I am a sinner. I have have fallen short of what you want me to do. I need to turn from that, God. I want to turn from that and follow after you if you've not done that. And some of you haven't. Listen, today is good news. Because the same God who saved and listened to and sustained David wants to do the same for you. He wants to give you new life in His Son, Jesus Christ. You're going to go back out into a world that is hurting, that is wicked, that is sinful. You're going to look around trying to find hope, and it's not there. It's because hope only comes through Christ. It only comes through a relationship with Him. It only comes through knowing Him. And if you don't know Him this morning, would you turn to Him? Would you... Would you cry out to God and say, God, I need you. God, I need you. I've got nothing. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that in just a moment. After we pray, would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the day you've given us. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ for the gift of his great salvation. God, there are those here who don't know you. God, they've never trusted in you. God, they've never followed you. But God, this morning you are crying out. God, you're crying out to them. God, you're speaking to hearts. God, you're telling them of your great love and that you want them, that you pursue them desperately. God, my hope is this morning that we would all listen. We would all listen to your voice, to your word. God, I just pray that each person here respond. God, that we respond as you call us. God, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you would stand with me, we're going to sing. As we do, if you're here and you know Christ, but, but with the world that you're, you're facing, with the things that are going on, you, you need to depend more on Him. God's reminding us of that today. We are completely dependent on Him. We have no abilities on our own, and we try so often to do it without Him. Maybe today's the day that you say, you know, God, I'm going I'm to rest in Your arms. I'm going to take on Your burden. I'm going to follow after You. Maybe that's you this morning. If you don't know Christ, I invite you to come. I'd love to share with you how you could know Him how he can change your life. Would you respond as we sing?